Summer is going to be preaching for us this morning. Um, and so, yeah, turn in your Bibles to Ephesians uh, chapter 4 as Nate comes and brings the word to us this morning. Good morning. Uh, I guess I was talking to a couple of my friends from seminary uh, whose pastors were also at General Assembly this week, and they're also preaching this week. So I feel like if we wanted to institute some type of church calendar, then this would probably be Intern Sunday, uh, if we were to consider that. Uh, Okay, Ephesians chapter 4. I'm going to read the first 16 verses, uh, starting in chapter 4. I, therefore, a prisoner... For the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave to the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let's pray. Lord Christ, we thank you for gathering us this morning. We pray that you would be made great uh, and that we would decrease. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, I was thinking this week uh, in regards to our passage about the ideas of unity and maturity, because I think those are two essential aspects of the body of Christ, right? To be unified and to be mature Christians. And I was thinking about the Lego movie. Uh, and the Lego movie uh, is one of those movies where parents decided they were going to take their kids because they were like, oh, our kids would like this. And then they actually liked it. And so they started telling their friends to go and see this movie. Uh, but in the movie, there's Emmett, who is the uh, main character. He's a Lego And he is fully assimilated into this culture where everyone does the same thing, right? And Emmett, you can tell, is a little bit immature, but he loves it. He loves just doing what everyone else does, right? He he eats his breakfast the same way. He does his morning routine the same way. He does his job the same way. And he loves it until he experiences something different. 
because he realizes that maybe he doesn't know everything about the world and being in unity with the world or being the same as everyone else may not be the most mature way to be, right? And so what is the call to the Christian if we consider what it means to be mature? What is Christian maturity and what does it look like for Christians to live together as mature believers? Because I think if we were to examine our own impulses in regards to the way in which we often engage in Christian community, uh, we're all guilty of a great deal of things, right? We talk poorly about others sometimes, whether it be on social media or with our friends. Um, We're judgmental, we're overly critical, we're uncharitable, and we're unloving. And I think if we were to think about the church, and we were to take 10 minutes to scroll through our Twitter feeds right now, it'd be very apparent and we would all see it. And so I guess the question I want to answer today, or what I'm going to propose today, is that the answer to maturity in the church is unity in the church. That maturity in the church is unity in the church. And so we're going to deal with two things. First, the call to the unity, the call to unity, and the gifts for unity. So to begin in understanding the shape of this passage, we should first recognize there's a tone shift, right? Because if the first part was primarily about instructing, about doctrine, about clarity in the gospel, uh, Paul is shifting to something else because he's exhorting them, he's calling them to do something now about all of the things that he has already heard, right? He, he changes his tone because if the first part was about orthodoxy, then now we are going to start talking about orthopraxy. What are, what's the practice of believers? What are we supposed to do? What are we called to do in regards to this gospel that we have heard of? What is, what is our proper response as we live in the world from the grace that we have received? What is the response that we have in regards to the grace that Jesus Christ has done through us and through the Holy Spirit? And so Paul is doing this in the way in which he communicates. And it's sort of like if, if you have a, one of those history teachers in high school who was a teacher, right, and he talked one way, but he was also the football coach. He's not going to teach in the same way in the classroom that he's going to coach. And that's kind of what Paul is doing here when he's calling us to do something about it or to change the way in which we're practicing or living. And so what is the manner of walking that we're supposed to be walking in? It says, I, therefore... A prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling in which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. And I think in beginning to understand maturity and unity, we must first see that because of the great grace that we have been given, right, in Jesus Christ, he calls us to walk in a specific way. There is a specific way to following Jesus And we do not get to set the terms for this. We are given the terms for walking. And it says here, the calling is to be humble, to be gentle, to be patient, and to be bearing with one another in love. Because a theme that we have been constantly talking about is if if we're this new creation and the triune God is at work in Christ Jesus, and that he's calling us to the church, this beautiful, diverse community then God is working through us and he has called us to be holy first. See, earlier in Ephesians 2, 
We get this gospel clarity for all believers, and we're being converted and regenerated in the Holy Spirit. And then we're called to be holy. The product is holy. Or as Exodus 21, 29 says, you shall be holy for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. And we are called to holiness that looks like what Paul has described here, right? It's humility and gentleness and patience and bearing with one another. Oftentimes when we think of holiness, we think about doing the right thing or following a set of rules. And I don't think it's less than that, right? But holiness here To be a prisoner of the Lord Jesus, to walk in receiving the gospel, is to be humble and gentle and patient and bearing with one another. But the the first call here, the call to be humble, the call from Paul, is that we are to be morally good. It's not just that, but the calling here in the Greek culture to be humble was something else. It was called to produce action, and this action was scorning. It was shame. It was embarrassment. See, the call to be humble in the Greek culture was not a, something that was to be revered or seen as positive because to be humble in Greek culture was to think lowly of yourself. It was to uh, give up all your possessions, to give up any status. And in Greek culture, status was the thing. You wanted to be known by your status. You wanted to be known by the position you had. You wanted to be known by the job you had. You wanted to be known by who you knew. And Paul is saying, You have to do the opposite of what everyone else around you is doing. To be humble is to be seen as shameful in this culture. But I also think we have to think about what does humility mean for us, right? And Tim Keller calls it all the time. He says it's not thinking less of yourselves. It's thinking of ourselves less. Humility is thinking about ourselves less. It's considering one another's before we consider ourselves Because Paul is calling Christians here to be humble for the sake of Christ, that we would be made humble, that Christ would be made great, right? He's calling us to make ourselves low, that we would make Jesus great. And then in this this reality, this new community of being Christians, to being humble Christians, to being holy as God is holy, he's also calling us to gentleness, right? Humility and gentleness. And it's one thing to think of ourselves less, but it's quite another thing to be gentle with others, right? It's hard to be gentle with others when we're upset or when we see someone else doing something that we want to do or that we think that they shouldn't be doing. It's hard for us to be in Christian community and to be gentle with one another when we clearly see that something is wrong. We need to be gentle. We need to be kind. And then... Paul calls us to be patient, that the manner worthy of walking is not just humility, thinking of ourselves less, or to be gentle with one another. He's also calling us to be patient. And in considering unity and maturity that is to be grasped by God's church, humility and gentleness come through patience. Patience with ourselves and primarily patience with others. Because if we've talked about the glory of God being lived and seen in the world through the church, then patience is going to be quite hard because the church is full of other people. And it is hard to live with other people. To be patient with other people. You've already called me to be humble and to be gentle. And now we're considering patience. And we're only 
in the first two verses of this whole section. But if the church is to be holy as God is holy, or to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, then we are to see that Jesus is the embodiment of God's patience with us. Jesus is the embodiment of God's patience with us. That we, when we consider the people who are hardest to consider when we think about unity, the hardest people that we can think of, I do not want to be unified with them. I do not want to be considered with them. That God has been patient with us far longer than we have had to be patient with others. And that when we being begin to be prideful, asking why we must continue to be humble and gentle towards others and why we must be patient, that God has been just as patient with the thorn of another that we are often a thorn in God's side and he is patient to us. See, we are called to be patient as Jesus was patient, that Jesus is the embodiment of the callings here, that Jesus is loving, that Jesus is patient, that Jesus is gentle, that Jesus was humble. He is the embodiment of all those things, and he has been far more patient with us. But if we, if we continue on, with patience bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It doesn't just require patience with one another, but patience is eager because patience desires that unity would be rooted in something bigger, and it would create and produce maturity. See, all of these traits are eager to say that I am committed to you, and I am committed to others because I have been called to you. That the calling to live in the church is a calling to one another. It's a calling to the gospel, and then it's a calling to love other people. That we are bound to these people because we are bound to Christ. It's not simply an eagerness that is empty, but an eagerness that chooses to grab hold of this bond of peace. This bond of peace, peace, which is only found in recognizing that it is the spirit that unites us to Christ and to each other. And therefore, when we consider unity, we recognize that this unity is Christ's peace. It's Christ's patience. It's Christ's kindness. It's Christ's love. And to walk in a worthy manner is to commit to enduring for one another. And it's an endurance that needed, needs to be committed to truth above all things, right? See, in considering the cost of what it means to bear with one another in love, to continue in a spirit of unity, it is to begin to see that the manner worthy of walking in is one that is wholly committed to the gospel, and if we, are committed, if we are to consider love and peace, maturity and unity, the reality is that it cannot be detached from God. See, if God is not a part of or he's absent of each of these things being formed in us, then it's not a true unity. It's not a true spirit because God is these things. What we want to acquire, God is. And we get to grow up into these things, right? God already is kind, patient, humble, loving. And we grow up into those things. So verse 4, it says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, 
one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. See, before we even get to how the ways in which God will use the body to form the body into each of these fruits, we have to see that the ways in which he has promised to unite us to himself. Before we get the how, we get the why. That maturity and unity and that a manner worthy of walking in is one which first confesses that which is already true. And that here God is declaring himself supreme over the world in order that we might receive and confess the truth that forms unity. And I think this is an important note, especially in a time and a place in many ways in which we're divided on all areas of the spectrum. This week I watched our general assembly that Josh was at. And it is very clear, even in our church order, in our churches, that we are divided politically, socially, culturally. And what God is declaring here is that unity will be found in him in the truth of who he is. If it isn't God, then it isn't truth and it isn't going to be unifying. If God says, I haven't said it, and you're creating all of these extra ways in which we're to be either kind or loving or patient or none of those things, then it's not true. That your unity and maturity does not exist outside of God. Our unity and maturity do not exist outside of God. But the best part about this is that God, in God, exists unity and diversity, and we are inheritors of both of these things. And so... The second point, what are the gifts for unity? And how are we to consider the church and our calling to live amongst each other in the unity of God and his truth and the diversity of all three persons of God, right? We've been talking about the triune God, and this is the perfect example. So verse 7, the gifts for unity. Verse 7, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. See, as we, begin, as we begin to think about what, what, I'm, what I'm calling these gifts for unity, what I'm, that's, I think that's what Paul is giving us, that Paul is going to remind us that in order to be mature, in order to be an active participant in unity and for unity within the church, we have to realize that we are in deep need of grace and that unity and grace are connected with this beautiful diversity. We've talked a few times, right, about how the, go- the glory of the gospel is that now Jew and Gentile are united together in one body, and that creates this beautiful diversity. And Paul asserts uh, to us that we are to consider that unity is found in the Spirit and that he is now making a point to consider the ways in which each one of us particularly Each one of us as individuals bring ourselves into the beautiful community. See, if the first six verses were an explanation on this perseverance toward unity, then I think the practical reality is this here in verses 7 to 16 is going to show us that diversity is a requirement for unity. And diversity is a requirement for maturity. That to be unified in the truth is to recognize that diversity serves the truth and it serves unity and it serves maturity. Diversity does all of those things. All of these are marks from the church, of the church. 
and that the church is to preach the truth, right? It is to be unified in what we belong, in that we belong to the same spirit. And it is supposed to be growing in maturity that each one of us are a part of this community in which we are mutually encouraging and making each other more mature. That in unity, maturity is created. And of all of these, it's a grand division. It's a grander vision of diversity, whether it be age, ethnicity, political, economic, diversity serves the church. That unity and diversity are to exist in the church because it is a reflection of our triune God. And God achieves this unity by first giving his son. That the gift of his son is the practical application of God creating a people for himself. What does it say? Verse 8. It says, therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Here, the intentionality of Paul is beautiful because it connect, it's connecting us to the ways in which the body is being created. See, the quote here is from Psalm 68. Psalm 68, it says, You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men. And this is a foreshadow of the gospel that Paul is telling us finds its fulfillment here in the church. See, in considering this psalm, we have to remember that this is a song that was sung for hundreds of years, right? The psalms were initially sung. They weren't just read, they weren't just used in their devotional quiet times. I use them in my devotional quiet times too. But they were actually sung by people. And this was a song that the people of God sang in hopes that one day their Messiah would come for them. That his redemptive history is unfolding, that the gift that would be announced in the Psalms would create a diverse people united to himself. But the Psalm here is much more than that because this was a song about the Exodus. It was a Psalm about Moses saving the people of God and ascending to the mountain of Lord where he, of the Lord where he would then receive the Ten Commandments, right? It was about Moses achieving temporary salvation for his people in liberating them. It was a foreshadow. And yet what we get here is not just the ascent of the Lord for our sake. We get a descent and that God took on flesh for us. Just as in Psalm 68, here in Ephesians 4, it tells us that Jesus has saved us from our enemies and liberated us from both the world and ourselves, that sin is defeated. And yet it goes on to say in verse 35 of Psalm 68, after Yahweh is described as taking up the heavenly place, it says, awesome is God from his sanctuary, the God of Israel. He is the one who gives power and strength to his people. Blessed be God. It's no accident, I think, that in speaking of God saving his people and giving them the gift of himself, that God actually gives gifts to the church and that Paul here is using this passage to show how for the sake of unity and maturity in the body of believers that he actually gives not just himself, 
but he gives gifts in order that we would be made holy and unified and diverse and wonderful people. Christ gives himself and he gives the means by which it's going to happen. He gives the gifts. He saves us from sin and he gifts the ways in which our sin will be killed. See, if Psalm 68 is the trailer, Ephesians 4 is the movie. It's the reality that Israel, that what Israel desired and foretasted is here in Ephesians 4. If Psalm 68 is the appetizer, then Ephesians 4 is the meal. And the gifts that Christ gives to the church, the primary gift in which we will receive maturity and unity is that he first gives leaders. He gives ordained, godly leaders. I think often if we think about Verse 11, it says, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. I think we can think, we've, we've all probably taken these, these spiritual gifts tests where we, we see this passage and we're like, oh, I'm a prophet, or I'm an evangelist, or I'm a teacher, or I'm this, or I'm that. What I think this is really calling us to is, is to consider that these are leaders that God is giving that we would all be grown up, that we could all do ministry. The gift is the leaders who then equip us to do all of these other things. That in order to create mature believers, to be unified in the church, that we need leaders to oversee us. That God has appointed leaders that they would disciple us, that they would call us out, that they would teach us, that we would, that we would grow up, that we would attain maturity and unity. That leaders would be given to oversee the ministry, and that ministry is something that is led, that these pastors or offices are for men that would go and equip us to then become leaders. That's the goal. That for unity and maturity, God has given leaders. And I think that these offices are specifically ordained to show us that we are called to something greater that officers are also people who call out the gifts and see the gifts in us and equip us to lead in the church, right? It would be no good if these leaders maintained for themselves a place and yet they didn't invite others to do the ministry for them, to love God and love neighbor. But we need leaders to train us and equip us to maturity that we would be unified. We need leadership. It's good news because it shows that God intentionally cares for his church and he calls specific people to lead that. That God has given us pastors and deacons to us in God's care that we would be led and encouraged and discipled well. And that we would submit ourselves humbly to godly leaders who have our best interests in mind. That pray for us, that teach us, that encourage us, that we would be more mature more unified, and more equipped for ministry in the life of the church. And the application of this would be that we continue to pray for our pastors. That would simply be one application, that we pray for our pastors regularly, that they would encourage us, that they would call out things in us that are wrong or sinful or that are going to challenge us to be more mature, to serve others better, And that we would pray that they would actually do that. That's what happens when we take membership vows, right? We submit ourselves to our leaders that we would then 
grow up and be mature, that we're submitting to a unity that exists in God and that we then get to serve others in that unity. That we would grow up in maturity through godly leadership that would, be, that would proclaim his word and to administer the sacrament to, to us. And that the labor of the kingdom of God is hard, but that's why we have pastors, right? We are called to other vocations, and those are good vocations. And yet the Lord has called pastors that we would live out our vocations in godly ways. Or, as verse 12 says, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the, full, the fullness of Christ. Because the pastors that the Lord give to us are essential for our discipleship. And to be a member of the church to submit ourselves to our pastors is for our good and for our holiness. And so what is the outcome for these gifts that God has given for unity? And the outcome begins with going back to this unity that is unified around the truth. One outcome of unity and maturity that we have been grown up is that we would know what is true and what is not true. Verse 14 so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, and deceitful schemes. See, an outcome of unity is that we would all grow up into Christ and the the gospel, that we would be able to recognize what is ungodly, unbiblical, and against the church, right? That we would be trained in order that we would then be able to call out what is wrong either in our brothers or in the world, that we would be unified and know what is true, that we would be able to hold ourselves and others accountable, that we would know what is evil and do what is good. This is an outcome of unity, and this is an outcome of maturity. So what does this look like? What is, what is the application? I, I don't necessarily have a, a, a five-step plan for us today, but I do think that 15 and 16 are worth applying. It says, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Maturity and unity are that we would all together live, our, live out our callings and that we would affirm callings in other people that they would go and love God and love neighbor. It's that seeing that every part of this unified body is diverse and necessary and needed. It's affirming the calling in others that we would then be mature, made mature by others and for others. The call is that the gospel would make us active in our communities, in our neighborhoods, in our church, and that each one of us is necessary for maturity and unity. That the call is to live into community that is hard and challenging, and we do it with patience and humility and kindness and love. And that we're eager to maintain unity 
Because God has come for us. And so each one of us gets to partake in the grand work that God is doing. Let's pray.